0: And with that, I am going to welcome Chris Lowry to introduce today's speaker. Um, Dr. Lowry is a professor of medicine and of pharmacology and toxicology, and he's the division chief for hematology.
1: Thank you, Kelly. Um, I feel extremely fortunate today to be able to introduce to you one of my all-time favorite colleagues, Dr. Deborah Ornstein. And she has so many accomplishments, I had to write them down so I don't forget anything. So uh, Deb began her education at Wheaton College, where she majored in chemistry. She then went on to the University of Chicago and got her master's degree in biochemistry. And then a few years later, she began her medical education at Dartmouth Medical School, as it was called back then. during her time at Dartmouth, she was very productive. Uh, she received a U.S. Air Force scholarship, and uh, she began her research career here into um, coagulation. At least I think that's right. And uh, she published her first paper in that area with Dr. Leo Zakarski, who's still on our faculty. And I'd like to just uh, take a brief second to uh, give a shout-out to Leo He couldn't be here today because he recently had surgery, but he's watching on the web because he said he didn't want to miss this. So uh, hello to Leo. (laughs) Um, So after finishing medical school, Deb went and uh, performed her internal medicine residency at UC Davis and Travis Air Force Base to fulfill her service obligation. But then she returned to Dartmouth in 1994, where she performed her HEMOC Fellowship and um, that was a four year fellowship because she won the prestigious Tiffany Blake Fellowship and was able to stay on for an extra year as a junior faculty member to perform research. But then the Air Force called her back again and uh, from 1988 to 2002, she was appointed as an assistant professor at the Uniformed Services Health Science uh, University in Bethesda and did her medical service at Wilford Hall Medical Center in Lackland Air Force Base in San Antonio. While she was there, she served as the medical director of the bone marrow transplant program and as the medical director of the special hematology and coagulation lab. So after finally leaving the Air Force in uh, 2002, she joined the faculty of the University of Vermont, where she rose to the level of associate professor and was the medical director there of thrombosis and their thrombosis and hemostasis program. But then she decided she needed a little more training and uh, she went to Yale for a hematopathology fellowship and then stayed on for one year as part of their faculty. And then finally realizing her ultimate destiny, <laughs> destiny like a character in Star Wars, she finally came back to DHMC in uh, 2008. She's currently associate professor in pathology and medicine. She's the medical director of the Comprehensive Hemophilia and Thrombosis Center and the medical director of the coagulation lab and the flow cytometry lab. And on any given day, you might see Deb in the hematology clinic, seeing patients with coagulation disorders, around the hospital doing consults, or uh, sitting behind her microscope over in pathology, reading complicated bone marrow and lymph node biopsies. Since she's been here, um, Deb um, has mentored 14 HEMOC fellows and pathology residents, and many of them have gone on to successful uh, academic careers. She's had over 20 grants to support her research. She's had over 80 publications, uh, including uh, primary research and reviews and books chapters. She has held uh, positions locally and nationally and now uh, regionally uh, on committees and uh, She's also um, received several teaching awards, including uh, teaching excellent awards from the Yale Department of Pathology, our own fellowship program here in hematology-oncology, which she's won twice, the Department of Medicine Chairs Teaching Award, the Department of Pathology Resident Teaching Award, and the Geisel School of Medicine Faulkner Teaching Award in Pathology. So a hugely uh, accomplished speaker today, and Deb will tell us about 2,000 years of hemophilia from biblical code to genetic code.
0: Thank you, Chris, I I don't know what to say. Maybe I could get you to do my eulogy someday, that would be great. (laughs) But I've been at Dartmouth now ten years. I have to sit back here ten years. It's the longest I've been able to hold a job, and uh, I'm really kind of, kind of, kind of getting settled here. Uh, okay. Yeah. I'd like to um, tell you that I have no relevant uh, disclosures. I am going to discuss some investigational work, but nothing uh, off-label and, and uh, nothing uh, shady. But I, I want to. Uh, to start, we're going to talk about hemophilia today, but I want to talk about, introduce you to three of the patients from our practice, and these are three patients from different generations, and I want you to think about them as I talk about how hemophilia care has changed over the ages, because these patients represent the major changes that we've seen in this field um, in, in my professional lifetime, which I... For God, it was that long, but I guess it's, <laughs> I didn't think it was that long, but I guess it is. So uh, the, the first patient is a middle-aged guy born in 1965, and he has severe hemophilia B, or, or less than 1% uh, coagulation factor nine, And his life has been characterized by spontaneous bleeding. He's, he's, he's bled in every joint, almost every muscle um, from the time he was an infant. He's been treated with coagulation factors and, as a result, developed an inhibitor to factor nine, making coagulation factor concentrates uh, ineffective, and we'll talk a bit about that. He's got infections with hepatitis C and HIV as a result of contaminated coagulation factors. He's got an arthropathy of every single joint, from shoulders to, to ankles. He uses a wheelchair much of the time, and when he's not using a wheelchair, he's, he's uh, using crutches. He's also blind in his right eye from a traumatic bleed. That's him. He's, he, so surprisingly, he's, he's, he's doing okay, he looks terrible, and, and for, the, for the purposes of, of the discussion here, I kind of made it a little worse than it is. But then, fast forward to about 30 years, and this is a young, young fellow in my clinic um, who just transitioned from pediatric care, born in 1993, he never had a bleed. He has perfect joints, he said, bleed, what's that? And the only time he bleeds, really, is when he has it coming to him, when he's doing th- the things he loves to do, like run, ski, and, and all the activities. And, and I actually first met him when he took a header over his bike and broke his collarbone and hit his, hit his head. Mm. So that's 30 years later. And then a newborn baby boy is born to a woman who's a hemophilia carrier, and he doesn't have hemophilia. And we'll talk about how that came to be um, uh, as I go on and and so the history of hemophilia is kind of interesting so i'll i'll go through the first 1000 years or so um and then mainly i'm going to focus on hemophilia today and by today i mean you know the past 75 or 100 years because uh, uh our our understanding and and uh, evolution of care has really um changed and then i'll talk about uh what we're going to look forward to tomorrow and when i say tomorrow i don't, i don't mean like Five or ten years from—I mean, like probably tomorrow—because this field is changing so rapidly, and it, it's just uh, uh, unbelievable. And I hope that by the end of this, you'll you'll have your mouth wide open at what's happened here. So, so we've known about hemophilia. You know, uh, Allude to my title uh, for you know two thousand years, and in the in the Talmud, it's it's written, if if you're you know it says for you know. If your son, if you circumcise your son and he dies, and then you circumcise your second son and he dies, the rabbi tells you do not circumcise your third son. And there's there, biblical scholars, you know, back in the back in the day, and, and even today, um, religious scholars argue about this. And, and back then they argued, well do you allow a woman to circumcise her third son and then not her fourth, or do you, you, know, do you stop after two sons? So they recognized that there was something uh, hereditary going on. And there's a story in the, in the Talmud about a, a family with four uh, sisters. And the first sister had her son circumcised and he died. And the second sister had her son circumcised and he died. And the third sister had her son circumcised, and he died from bleeding complications. And so it is said that the rabbi said to the fourth sister, don't circumcise your son. So, so back, uh, back then we recognized that there was something uh, uh, hereditary about this bleeding disorder. Um, and a few hundred years later, Maimonides <coughs> recognized the role of the female parent, uh, the mother, uh, in, in passing on this uh, disease. And uh, what he what he counseled was that if you have two sons who have died uh, from bleeding after circumcision, do not circumcise that third son if the first two bled with the same mother but different fathers. So if, if it's the same mother, even if, if different fathers don't circumcise, uh, a little further on we understood that, well, okay, the, di- the disease can be transmitted by a woman who has two or more husbands, but not a husband, not a man who has two or more wives. So, so very, very, very long time ago we understood that, that the transmission of this bleeding disorder was through the female side of the family. And everybody knows uh, the most famous uh, hemophilia carrier uh, in the world. This is Victoria. And their story is, is interesting uh, historically. This is a, a, a kind of abbreviated pedigree of the um, European royal family. So Victoria and Albert had nine children, and of their nine children, four were affected by hemophilia. So three, were, uh, three women were carriers, and, they, and one son, Leopold, who died early, you can see this? Um, who, he, he died uh, in his 30s, uh, was, was an affected male. And these uh, daughters spread hemophilia throughout the, Euro- the royal families of Europe, and uh, uh, most interestingly was the Russian royal family, the Romanovs. So Alexandra was the daughter of Alice, and she um, was the mother of uh, Alexis. And her, her, uh, 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 their story is interesting uh, because of uh, uh, the what well, the. Events of the time, so the the Russian Revolution was uh, 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 gearing up, and uh, Rasputin was this crazy Siberian uh, monk faith healer, and uh, uh, Alexandra believed in his um, his powers, and and befri- and he befriended her, and so she uh, uh, used him quite a bit to take care of her son uh, Alexis, to pray over him, and and. Treat his hemophilia uh, with hypnosis, and the and the Russians, you know, the the Russian citizens and the Bolsheviks, they didn't like Rasputin. They thought he was a crazy person. They didn't like. They didn't particularly think too much of Alexandra either, because she had German uh, roots. So so, uh, um, as, as things were boiling up here, uh, Rasputin was uh, 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 persona non grata. In 1912, when, when Alexei was eight, the family was taking a, um, a carriage ride, a very bumpy carriage ride, and he developed what I think was a, a bleed in his, his quadriceps, fairly commonplace for a hemophiliac to bleed. and um, it, The family had to turn around, go home, back, to the, back to the palace, and, and the doctors were ministering over Alexei, wringing their hands, oh my God, he's going to die, he's going to die, and Alexandra was having none of it. She calls up Rasputin or, or communicates w- with him, or whatever the, the method was, and, and uh, Rasputin says, all right, just don't, you know, the little one will not die if you do not allow the doctors to bother him. Is it familiar, right? It happens to us a lot. And, and, and so she did. She shooed him all away, and the doctors left the room, and he recovered. And it turns out uh, the doctors were uh, giving him aspirin for the pain and for the, for the bleeding, and aspirin has antiplatelet age. Activity and probably making things worse. And in fact, uh, he did recover, and that really cemented um, uh, the relationship between Alexandra and Rasputin. Uh, this does not have a happy ending, though. As you know, the Romanovs were murdered, um, and and part of the the thought is that uh, Rasputin uh, didn't make things any better for the for for the Romanovs. All right. So so the first. Um, the first account of hemophilia in uh, North America in the U.S. was an obituary of Isaac Zoll, and he died at age 19 and uh, excerpted from his, his obituary a slight cut on one of his feet from an axe, and, and uh, you know, the, there was no uh, uh, stopping the bleeding until he died. And then the obituary goes on to describe the death of his five brothers, each of which was from some minor uh, cut. And that uh, was what we think is the first uh, description of hemophilia in, in uh, the New World. Now, the interesting thing is that Isaac's father, Henry, was married twice. And only the sons of his first wife had this problem. His other sons uh, survived. So in New England, uh, uh, there's a fellow named John Hay who published a, uh, uh, the first pedigree of Hemophilia, well, what we know to be uh, hemophilia, in the New England Journal of Medicine, he called it a a hemorrhagic, a remarkable hemorrhagic uh, disposition, and uh, he noted that the children of of the bleeders are uh, never subject to this disposition, but their grandsons by their daughters are. So again, uh, uh, recognizing the the inheritance pattern. And this, uh, this was, was updated, so his original pedigree included uh, somewhere around 200 years of uh, uh, of uh, um, hemophilia, and he, he traced the original person with hemophilia immigrating from England in about 16, in the 1600s. His name was John Oliver, which I, I found kind of interesting. I don't know if the contemporary John Oliver knows about this, but it, it seems that the first uh, the, the, the first American hemophiliac was uh, uh, John Oliver. Um, and then it, it finally, in in New Hampshire, we have a fairly long history. I mean, we were one of the original colonies, right? So, so um, John Otto described a, um, a family, he, he described the Smith Shepherd family from, from Plymouth. And this woman named uh, Susanna Smith married Captain John Smith. Uh, john john shepard and and they had uh, seven sons, some of whom were bleeders and and others of whom uh, weren't and He noticed that um, the the females were exempt from the disorder, but they were capable of passing it on to their sons and um, uh, it, as far as I know the the this line dies out. I don't think that we have any of these patients in our our uh, practice presently. Um, but she's buried in Holderness, which is not too far from here, and there are a couple of a couple of small graves uh, nearby her that are hypothesized to be uh, of uh, uh, babies with hemophilia who, who didn't make it. So, so from you know time time two hundred up till about the eighteen hundreds, we understood that there was a, conge- a hereditary bleeding disorder seems to be passed through the female uh, side of the family to the males. Um and uh uh that's about all we we understood about it. So that, I I kind of wanna diverge a little bit and I, you know I hate to do it to you but you got to <laughs> <laughs> See that response is why I have a job. That's why I've been so <laughs> I've been able to 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 hang out for 10 years here and 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 do this. But you really you you you're you're going to wanna understand how coagulation works because this has a payoff at the end when you understand the, the, the advances that have been made recently. So this is, I, I promise, the simplest coagulation lecture you'll ever get. So, so you have to remember what happens uh, when you cut yourself. The first thing that happened, or one of the first things that happened is when a Willebrand factor, these little uh, green balls, bind the platelets and bring them to the site of the injury. And von Willebrand factor and platelets plug the leak. And that's your first line against ex- exsanguination. That's what keeps you from bleeding to death. But that's a very weak little clot, right? So the blood's rushing by, and if you just had the platelets there and the blood rushing by, it would just rush, wash it right away. So what you need is some kind of bandage on top of this platelet plug to, to keep it sturdy and what we have is is fibrin and that's where your coagulation cascade comes in and this is a simplified form what you have to know for the purposes of today is that that factor 9 activates factor 10 to form 10a which forms thrombin and thrombin is factor 2a thrombin is what makes fibrinogen thrombin is the key if you have if you have high amounts of thrombin You will convert high amounts of fibrinogen to fibrin and make a good clot, and it will look like this. Basically, it's a biological band aid that sits over that platelet plug until that wound is healed. Now, uh, factor 9 and factor 10 uh, are in proximity, but what factor 8 does is it brings them together. It brings 9 and 10 together so that uh, uh, 9 can activate 10 and activate thrombin to convert fibr- fibrinogen to fibrin. Right? It's simple. If people could realize how simple it was, everybody would want to do this, all right? Not to mention how fun it is. And that's that's all it is, so that's all it is. You're, you need your fibrin to make a strong clot so you don't bleed to death. All right, so with that, that's all you have to know to understand hemophilia. So I'm gonna, it doesn't want to let me go, it's just so interesting. Okay. So let's let's talk about the heredity. I mean, I think everybody here picked up pretty quickly that this is an X-linked recessive uh, disorder. So men are affected uh, because they have the one X chromosome, and they can pass this on to their daughters, who are then carriers. So, so in this pedigree here, the affected male is, uh, has passed this on to his daughters, and his daughters are obligate carriers. They have no choice but to be a hemophilia carrier because... They get the, their second X chromosome from Papa. The males are unaffected, so men can't pass it to their sons. And, and the carriers are most often asymptomatic. You know, the, the, they have half the factor eight or factor nine, most often asymptomatic. But they can bleed, and we have a handful of patients in our practice who are hemophilia carriers, women who bleed. They have low, lowish levels of coagulation factor, and they bleed. On the other hand, here's the, here's the female carrier, and she passes one X chromosome on to her daughter, so she can ha- have a carrier, a daughter who's a carrier, or a daughter who's not. And similarly, a son who's got the disease or a son who's not. So that's, that's the x linked recessive nature of hemophilia. There are two uh, major types of hemophilia that I'm going to talk about today, hemophilia A and B. And we're gonna, this is congenital hemophilia. There are acquired. Uh, acquired versions, but we're going to talk about uh, congenital. Most is hemophilia A or factor VIII deficiency. Uh, Hemophilia B is is factor IX deficiency. Worldwide, uh, the best estimates that we have are about 200,000 affected uh, patients and in the U.S. about 17,000. At our center, we, t- we uh, take care, or we've documented in the last uh, year or so that we take care of about 124 patients, probably a little more uh, than, than that um, based on uh, uh, patients who are fugitives from their annual follow-up. But these are, these are people we managed to capture. Uh, and about, uh, you know, up to about a half of people uh, develop hemophilia from new mutations. So, 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 some very often you can find the nice family pedigree like I've described. But uh, uh, you know, it's not uncommon to find new new mutations. So, a patient is born with hemophilia. Little baby boy starts to bleed. Where'd this come from in my family? And it, and new brand new mutation. And the mutations are are of many different types: Big deletions, small point mutations, missense, nonsense, any any type of mutations. These are the the this is the hemophilia severity scale. About half of hemophilia A is severe, uh, and what that means, severe hemophilia is is less than 1% factor, uh, coagulation factor. So you know in, in our our reference interval for coagulation factors, there's a big population variation. So 50% to 150% is generally considered normal. Anything greater than 50% is is normal hemostasis. Uh, so severe hemophilia, undetectable factor eight or nine. And these these boys are typically diagnosed in infancy because they will bleed spontaneously. You know, they, the Brownian motion of an infant will, you know, you look up over in the crib and, and the baby boy is, is bruised. Um, and, and the uh, older boys will just spontaneously bleed in their joints, just sitting there in their own business, and down all of a sudden there's a, a, a bleed in the joint. So, so severe hemophilia, uh, undetectable factor, uh, spontaneous bleeding. And it doesn't take much uh, coagulation factor to alter the phenotype. So moderate hemophilia is up to about 5% of normal, um, and though these, these patients may have spontaneous bleeding, it's much less. Uh, they, they bleed with with minor trauma, but but much less, and it's often they're not often diagnosed until toddlerhood, unless it's expect, suspected in the family when they start to run around and bump their heads and bump everything. Now, mild hemophilia um, with uh, factor levels of five to forty you percent know, may be asymptomatic and and not even diagnosed uh, until adulthood. 30 percent factor eight you won 't necessarily find that as a prolongation of the PTT and um, we have a few patients in our practice who were diagnosed in their in their 70s when I, when I was in the Air Force, I uh, admitted a guy with um, a pancytopenia he's a retired master sergeant in his 60s and he'd been through his entire military career and uh, he had pancytopenia, we thought he had acute myeloid leukemia, so I had the fellow do the bone marrow biopsy and and he, he did that. We went home that night and came in the next morning. The guy has a big bruise all the way down his flank. And we looked at him and said, What the heck? And and he said, Oh, I forgot to tell you I have mild hemophilia A. And we said, You forgot to tell us? Who forgets that? And and, and he said, Well, gee, you know, it's kinda it's kind of new to me too. I'm just getting used to it, because you know, I, you know, I've always been a bleeder, but you know, it, you know, I'd have a tooth pulled, I'd bleed for a little bit, but it always stopped. You know, greatest generation guy, was not not a complainer, and he, was, and he said, well, and then my daughter um, had a son, and he bled when she had him circumcised, and so the, they figured out he had hemophilia, and they traced it back to me. I'm like, well, okay, I guess that's, a, I, I guess uh, it takes some, it takes a while to, to get used to the idea. So, I mean, you know, our our kids grow up with it; they know. But you know, it's it's new to them. So the clinical manifestations of hemophilia are, are bleeding, and we don't know that factor eight and factor nine do anything else other than than uh, a bet coagulation. Um, there, there tends, tend uh, bleeding can be anywhere really, but there tend to be some some. Uh, uh, sites that are, are more common uh, in age groups. So, so with infants, we worried about uh, intracranial bleeding. And also sites where you do things to them. Heel sticks, you know, when they get their vitamin K shot, when they're, when they're uh, uh, first uh, born, sometimes uh, that will be the time we'll diagnose a, an infant. Um, children, as they start to toddle around, will, will bruise and, and, and bleed in, in muscles and foreheads because you know, kids are always bumping. Also, the mouth of frenulum, the housing and bleeding the frenulum. The older kids, that's when you start to see more joints and and uh, muscle bleeds. And in fact, the hemarthrosis, the, the the joint bleeding, is uh, the most common type of bleeding that um, our patients experience. And and it's mostly knees, elbows, and ankles. And that's it's somewhat age dependent. So the little boys. It's mostly el- uh, ankles and, and knees, but as they get older and start using their arms for for doing more things, uh, elbows. And and recurrent bleeding, repeated bleeding into a joint, can set up what we call a target joint, um, and I'll I'll show you a little bit about that. And this is an example of a, a kid. I mean, the bruises are obvious, but here at this knee. Uh, has a, a chronic uh, arth- arthropathy from repeated bleeding, and this is this kid's uh, target joint. Um, uh, this is an example of a, uh, a quadriceps bleed, a big muscle uh, hematoma, probably the, the type of bleeding that uh, uh, the little Russian uh, prince uh, developed. And so, so uh, the arthropathy. Is what is responsible for most of the disability in our patients, uh, notwithstanding infectious diseases, which we'll we'll talk about a little bit. So, this little cartoon of how the the joint disease uh, sets up in these patients is a healthy joint. And what happens, you have an acute bleeding event in the joint, you've got blood in the joint, iron in the joint, iron stimulates the proliferation of the synovium. The synovium is very vascular, but those blood vessels are very delicate, and they're they're susceptible to bleeding again. So you bleed once in the joint, uh, you can bleed again. And you kind of set up this this loop, uh, resulting in chronic synovitis, get uh, bad arthritis, and eventually uh, bony destruction. And the the synovium uh, proliferates, and sometimes uh, uh, some of our patients get some benefit from a synovectomy, uh, to to uh, help uh, arrest that process. Here's an example of uh, a young man with uh, an acute bleed on top of a target joint. So this is a, the joint that is uh, uh, his most uh, common area of bleeding. And uh, this is a nice, healthy joint. And then look at this. This is a, a terribly diseased joint. And if you look at this, look at the the, the atrophy in the, the thigh there. So this is... Uh, uh, this is no kidding, not to be um, uh, underestimated. And this is a this is a uh, radiographs of one of our patients, a twenty nine year old uh, fellow with uh, severe hemophilia A, and uh, he and, and twenty nine bilateral joint replacements. His knees were so bad. This was a few years ago, um, and uh, the uh, this is this is one of the the more common. Uh, uh, Surgeries that we have seen in our adult patients and at fairly early ages. So, you remember Britt Holderness, who was a a resident here and one of our our great Hemong Fellows. She looked at our experience with orthopedic surgery, and we we have a a center for orthopedic surgery for hemophilia here. And she looked at our experience uh, over the years, and uh, the median age of uh, hip and knee replacements for our patients was 42. With the range going down to 17, we did knee replacements in 17-year-olds back in the day. So, so this is a, a fairly severe arthropathy and fairly early on. an example of one of our patients with an elbow uh, arthropathy. He's got a chronic uh, uh, flexion contracture here. You can see this is his, his X-ray compared to a normal uh, healthy joint. And then the other joints uh, involved... Ankles, nice healthy joint space here, and terrible uh, uh, arthritis and damage to um, uh, the ankle joints and This is very painful this is, this, uh, ultimately these these ankles will will fuse on their own uh, due to the inflammation, but before they do they 're quite painful and, and one of the surgeries that we uh, will frequently recommend is a surgical ankle fusion uh, for symptom relief the um, the, the bleeding is not limited to the joints, and uh, this is a. These are some some radiographs from patients we've had over the years. This was a, a CT scan of a, uh, a fellow with uh, mild hemophilia A, about twenty percent factor eight at baseline, and he um, he's from New Jersey, and he has a gentleman's farm up here in in uh, Randolph, and and he. Uh, was working on a ladder, developed abdominal pain, goes to the local hospital, they get a, a CT scan. They said, oh my God, you got lymphoma. And they're about ready to biopsy it. And he goes, oh, by the way, I have hemophilia. And they shipped him here. And, and sure enough, uh, we didn't know him, uh, but uh, uh, we did end up biopsying this, but it turned out to be to be blood. And three months later, yeah, with uh, treatment of with coagulation factor concentrates, it's uh, resolved. So that that could have been cancer, and it's not. Uh, and then the other the other location to watch out for is the psoas muscle. So this is a big psoas muscle bleed, and these can happen spontaneously and, and mimic for all the world acute appendicitis. You know, there's a, a guy comes in with with right lower quadrant pain. He's flexed like this. Um, uh, in the old days, before we, we scanned everybody, a bunch of hemophilia patients would get uh, exploratory laparotomies for for uh, presumed appendicitis. All right, so that's that's the type of, of of bleeding we're talking about. So let's let's talk a little bit about the the treatment through the ages, and uh, really, uh, there there wasn't much to do uh, until just recently. So. Uh, From the the late 1800s to the early 1900s, you could have your family member give you some some blood, hold up the the arm and give you some blood. The um, life expectancy at that time was very young. In in the turn of the 20th century, the Surgeon General's catalog of of, uh, treatments for hemophilia uh, included a bunch of crazy things, although gelatin, that might actually work on, on a wound, I suppose, but these were this was what was on offer uh, then, uh, snake venom. So does anybody know what this is here? This is a Russell's viper, and uh, snake venom actually has uh, a, a procoagulant. It's called stitfin and activates factor 10, and so it really does activate coagulation. Problem is, it's hard to titrate, and, and so most people given this die. Right? Give, so this this was not a very good. Uh, that was truly snake oil, so that was not very good. <laughs> and then, and then uh, in the 50s and early 60s, uh, plasma. We discovered that plasma was able to correct the, the coagulation uh, uh, deficit, but huge volumes were needed just to, just to um, uh, uh, correct the, the coagulation factor levels a little bit. But a big breakthrough in 1965 was the discovery of cryoprecipitate. So this was the the fraction of plasma that was left out over after you thought. and the little dust on the bottom was very rich in factor VIII. And what what this meant was that you could pool cryoprecipitate from a number of different donors and come up with a reasonable dose at a small enough volume that uh, you could infuse this into a patient and stop, uh, give them enough factor VIII to stop bleeding. And this allowed uh, uh, blood banks to produce it and store it and have it available for emergencies. Bleeding, come in and, and, uh, and uh, uh, infuse it. Uh, in the 1970s, even further, um, <laughs> freeze-dried coagulation factor concentrates were developed. So many donors isolate the factor VIII, isolate the factor IX, freeze-dry it, put it in a little vial here, and this really revolutionized hemophilia care because now you had a little vial of factor VIII. This is a dose that would, would stop your bleeding. You can give this to yourself at home, which meant that you start bleeding and you can be taught to self-inject and you can, you can stop bleeding at home without you know, driving many miles to get to an emergency room and waiting, and, 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 and so, so this meant that acute bleeds could be treated uh, right away. These were heavy times for for hemophilia care. In 1975, the the United States Congress funded the the National Hemophilia Treatment Center program, which allowed for um, uh, multidisciplinary care in these specialized centers and uh, included not only the hematology uh, group, but ancillary uh, uh, services to help help Uh, take care of uh, patients with and and complications. Initially, in 1975, there were 26 federally funded centers, and Dartmouth was one of them, and now there are about 130. And uh, about 20 years ago, um, investigators looked at the care that hemophilia patients got at uh, hemophilia treatment centers compared to Care in the community and found a significant case-control study, you know, with all the limitations, but found a significant improvement in uh, mortality for uh, men cared for by this multidisciplinary um, uh, uh, in this multidisciplinary setting. So that was in the 1970s, and you know the 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 outlook was was pretty good. The, the life expectancy of men with hemophilia was approaching that of uh, men the same age without hemophilia. But um, like this poor guy, who, is, uh, who doesn't know what's about to hit him, in the 1980s, the um, unintended consequences of the advances of hemophilia hit us. And this was a devastating time. The coagulation factor concentrates derived from plasma were heavily contaminated with HIV and hepatitis C. And as a result, uh, somewhere north of half of all patients with severe hemophilia were infected with HIV, and the majority with hepatitis C. And thousands of men died. Many uh, men in, in, in our center died, and the adults who got through this, many are, are infected with, with HIV today. So this was, this was very humbling, very traumatic for both the patients, the families, and the hemophilia treaters, because the, the treaters, think about it. Here, this is great. This is going to fix your hemophilia. Take this, take this, take this. Oh, by the way, you now have a uh, uh, life-threatening disease that I encourage you to, uh, to take. So this was, this was a very uh, difficult time in, in hemophilia care. Um, in the, it wasn't until about the 1990s that we had, Uh, good recombinant coagulation factors, recombinate was one of the the first, it's still around, it's very good. Um, And uh, viral inactivation methods for plasma-derived products uh, uh, were developed. And as a result, this this went fast. And as a result, there's been no HIV transmission since uh, uh, about the mid-'80s and similarly about the the late-'90s for hepatitis C. And so we're back on on track. We've lost a lot of people, and a lot of people are um, uh, infected with with viruses. But we're kind of back on track here. And in 1995, there was a a paradigm shift from treating acute bleeds to let's treat, let's prevent bleeding. Doesn't that make sense? If, If we can start treating with coagulation factors early, we've got nice, safe products we start treating early, can we prevent the joint disease rather than waiting until it develops and um, and and there there were randomized trials they 're small because the population's small, but but showed that this was effective in uh, especially in in kids and and now in in two thousand and eighteen, prophylaxis is recommended, and this is a metric that we get. Uh, we, we get graded on at our federal hemophilia center How, what proportion of our kids uh, are on prophylaxis. And so, so three times a week, um, infusing coagulation factor con- concentrates through uh, an IV, you know, early on when the kids are babies, they get metaports. Their moms are taught to access the metaports and infuse them three times a week. And what this does for, for factor eight, it keeps the level of factor eight. Um, just above that one percent threshold, and that's um, that's uh, the the target. Because if you can turn a severe hemophilia patient into a moderate hemophilia patient, you you uh, reduce the the spontaneous bleeding uh, into the joint quite a bit. Um, and this is a so so as the kids get older, they don't need their mediports anymore, and, and uh, we teach them to self-infuse. This is not one of our patients, but this is from the World Hemophilia site, and uh, they self-infuse. This is per, they have the paraphernalia and they do this at home, or their mothers do it. Um, it's expensive. There's no question. I and mean, this is not a this is not a cheap uh, uh, therapy. So that's that's a downfall there There are some remaining questions about this like when do you when do you stop do you ever stop? Uh, I don't think so and what happens if you stop and you you start to bleed in the joints so so is is one percent is that enough I, I think it's probably not it's probably not uh uh it's effective but but it's uh probably too low to live a normal life and the question is what what's the effect of prophylaxis in adults so what about if you have uh, a joint disease already established. And I'll show you an example uh, You know, because a lot of us think, well, it's already, it's already there. You've got joint disease. How are we going to help by, by um, preventing uh, uh, more bleeds? Well, it turns out that this is the SPINART study. This was a randomized trial in adults with, with severe hemophilia A uh, given uh, uh, recombinant factor VIII three times a week. Um, and looking at the total number of bleeds after a year and some secondary uh, endpoints. The average uh, age of these uh, subjects in the study was about 30. And, um, and, and what were the results? Well, I, I, think, I, I think that you wouldn't be surprised to see that, that bleeding uh, episodes went down. So if you've got prophylaxis, your, your median number of bleeding episodes was zero, Half of the men on prophylaxis did not bleed at all, whereas uh, uh, only 2% of the patients on, uh, uh, on what we call on-demand treatment uh, bled. And then and a couple of uh, 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 other uh, endpoints, looking at joint health. So for this, these purposes, the, the numbers up here are, are bad. Uh, numbers down here are good. And these are the patients with on-demand therapy. Their joints got worse over the three years, and here are the patients on, uh, on uh, prophylactic therapy. So not only did they not get worse, but maybe they got a little bit better. And then quality of life was, was uh, a little bit better for patients on prophylaxis. So that's, that's become, uh, these days, the, the standard of care for adults now is prophylaxis. This is another uh, endpoint of that study, looking at healthcare utilization, and um, uh, the on-demand folks had fewer number of, uh, uh, sorry, the prophylactic folks had fewer number of contacts with the medical establishment, about half. They had fewer surgeries, and they had uh, fewer lab tests. So so utilization of healthcare resources down with prophylaxis. Whether this is cost-effective or not, uh, uh, we we don't really uh, 100% know so so the the you know up until about the turn of of uh, this century, you know the improvements in hemophilia care have been characterized by refinements in the the recombinant factors they're easier to give, smaller volumes, uh, et cetera. Um, and we're, you know I cannot overstate uh, the importance of improvements in HIV care for our infected patients um, and and Prophylaxis is becoming more acceptable. So, so this is, these various lines here are, are prophylactics by age. These are the kids, uh, and you can see in 1999 about half, 2010 about uh, 60, 70 percent of kids, and and now uh, it's the majority of kids on prophylaxis. The old guys uh, have been a little slower to come to the to the prophylaxis. Uh, uh, onto the onto the prophylaxis train and, and uh, there are a lot of reasons for that I, you have to stick yourself three times a week does any, anybody in this room have trouble getting somebody to take a pill once a day no right so imagine yeah and our old guys don't like to do that um, um, so one of the one one of the um, advances that uh, helps a little bit with this um, uh, with the uh, three times a week is a development of extended half-life factor concentrates. So the half-life of factor nine is about a day, and in order to keep a, a, a trough level of above 1%, that's a twice-a-week infusion. Well, what if you could make that half-life longer? What if you could infuse only once a week or once every two weeks? Would that make it more uh, palatable do, to do? For sure. And, and in fact, um, We have products on the market now in which factor nine is fused to another molecule, and these are uh, examples. uh, There are three commercial products, all of which are are available. And what these these have done, to varying extents, is improve the half-life from about 24 hours up to 100 hours. And that's been—it hasn't been a home run, but it's been uh, an advance for some of our patients with with factor nine. So, so instead of infusing uh, two times a week. Once a week to uh, once every couple weeks. This has been a less uh, successful strategy for factor eight uh, for for a number of different reasons. Uh, so so generally, uh, in our practice, we don't have a lot of our patients on extended half-life uh, factor eight products. Uh, they're awful expensive, and you don't really get too much out of it. But our extended half-life um, factor nine products uh, are are working pretty well. Yeah. Right. So. So, uh, as this uh, mouse is about to find out, uh, this uh, the, these uh, recombinant uh, coagulation factors uh, come at uh, somewhat of a cost, and it turns out that if you have um, severe hemophilia A or B, and you're you you don't make coagulation factor eight or factor nine, if I give you Factor eight or nine concentrates. What does your immune system do? It says, "Huh? Oh, what the heck? Whoa, huh?" And and it recognizes the coagulation factor as foreign and ultimately makes an antibody against it. We call this an inhibitor. And uh, um, this, so if you have an inhibitor against eight or nine, you have lost the ability to do this part of of coagulation, and this is a disaster, as you might imagine. Why is it a disaster? Well, well, if your uh, factor eight deficient uh, person, I give you factor eight, and you have an inhibitor, where does that factor eight go? It gets sucked up by the antibody. It does not work anymore. And so, so I can't control your bleeding. Patients with inhibitors um, uh, have uh, difficulty controlling acute bleeds. I can't guarantee that, that I can, can control bleeding during surgery, for example, or, or trauma. These patients bleed more. They have worse joints. Inhibitor-patient uh, medical expenditures are, expenditures are very high. And as you might expect, if we can't control the bleeding, life expectancy uh, goes down. Uh, what, what, what's our strategy for managing inhibitors? Well, we try to prevent them uh, if possible, and it turns out early prophylaxis, uh, if you can prevent that first major bleed. So, for example, a bleed in a knee is a very inflammatory thing, right? And the immune system gets ginned up and you give uh, factor eight. Um, the, there is, are some data that suggests that if you can prevent that first major bleed by starting prophylaxis early that that, that uh, prevents uh, inhibitor formation and uh, uh, what about using plasma derived products so this is going backwards right backwards 30 years and it turns out that, th- that in randomized trials if you start kids we call them pups previously untreated patients pups, if you treat pups and, and start their, their prophylaxis with plasma-derived products, they will have fewer, uh, uh, less formation of inhibitors. And so that is our practice now. Um, uh, they're, they're, uh, what, if, what if we have a kid with inhibitor? Well, immune tolerance, giving high doses of factor. Our pediatric colleagues are very good when their kids develop uh, uh, inhibitors, doing immune tolerance, giving very high doses of, of coagulation factors. Uh, to, to try and uh, get rid of the, the inhibitor, but uh, uh, some patients uh, will have a recalcitrant inhibitor and what do you, what do we do? Well we treat those patients uh, bleeding episodes with with bypass agents and, and if your just don 't work they 're very inefficient and uh, uh, don 't control bleeding as well. but what if you what if you could substitute something for factor eight? I remember I told you how the, the job of factor eight, this is factor eight on the phospholipid membrane. The job of factor eight is to bring nine and ten together. a big bear hug, and this is what this is what it does. So factor eight is like a matchmaker. It brings nine and ten together. It improves the, the steric relationship. Well, what if what if there was something that could do that that was not factor eight? Something like a bispecific antibody, right? So, this is a humanized bispecific antibody, and it brings factor 8 and 9 together. And these investigators from Japan, in in 2002, so keep that in mind, 2002, uh, wrote a paper on uh, this bispecific antibody. They called it ACE910. And in animal models, this took the place of factor 8. And so they give the bispecific antibody, it turned on coagulation, and the mice stopped bleeding. So what happened? Five years later. Five years later, phase three tri- trials of this reagent, bispecific antibody, it has a has a name, emicizumab, and uh, in, in patients with inhibitors, right? So this is, you don't even need factor eight, it, but patients with factor eight inhibitors, phase three trial, weekly dose, by subcutaneous injection. So no three times a week, one subcutaneous injection, once a week. Uh, in, in these patients with high-titer inhibitors, and they looked at at the rate of of bleeding episodes. Um, Four groups: the the weekly medication, randomized two to one against no prophylaxis. Patients who already were on a prophylactic regimen with a bypass agent got the drug, as well as people. This is a Haven two study, as well as people who clamored to get into the Haven one study, but 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 we're too late. This study filled in about five minutes. This study filled in about two minutes, and people are just running to this. This um, started enrolling in November 2015, and the first data cutoff was a year later. So it enrolled, was done, and uh, reported in a year. And what happened? It's it's, nothing short of miraculous. So... So these are the main results. These lines all represent bleeding episodes. This is an annualized bleeding rate. These are the patients treated. Annualized bleeding rate here falls from uh, an average of 28 bleeds a year down to five. And this and this was this was you know, the, the third group with the uh, treated. Two thirds of patients had zero zero bleeding episodes. Zero bleeding episodes. This, I mean, this, this, was, this was a miracle. These are, these are the worst patients, the, the patients who bleed the most with inhibitors. It's two-thirds, zero bleeding episodes. Uh, there are problems with this. Um, some minor annoying side effects. Major problem is thrombosis, right? So if you are, are constitutively activating the coagulation system and you've got to bleed and then you start to throw bypass agents on top of that, these people clotted. So we had to pull back and say, whoa, wait a minute, maybe we don't give you quite so much uh, uh, treatment. And it turns out that that once we figured out that you don't need quite so much uh, rescue treatment as we've as, as been using, um, this has, has become less of a problem. So this drug, um, from, from five years, a little paper in Nature, is FDA approved for men with inhibitors. And um, it has a name, hemlibra. What if we, what if we lose antithrombin, which is a major regulator? If we downregulate antithrombin, then coagulation can can uh, proceed. And in fact, there is a drug uh, y- using RNA interference uh, technology that will downregulate antithrombin and increase uh, thrombin generation. And in phase one studies. Almost the same miraculous uh, results in, in patients with, with hemophilia A and B with inhibitors. Uh, uh, these patients uh, were were had markedly lower bleeding risk. Um, there's a phase three in progress. There's a little problem with thrombosis, same as with the uh, emicizumab. But again, adjusting um, uh, adjusting the, uh, the the doses of rescue medication is is where um, we're going there. And I, I, I think that I will um, end by asking, is there going to be a cure for hemophilia? And um, how, uh, uh, you know, how, how, how can we make that uh, a reality? Well, it turns out that gene therapy is a great uh, idea for hemophilia. Hemophilia is a monogenic disease. There's only one gene involved. If you can transfect a normal gene... Then, then you can, can uh, essentially normalize the coagulation factor uh, production. And, in fact, there are two gene therapy trials that uh, are mature, uh, both in hemophilia A and hemophilia B. And uh, these patients have been transfected with, um, with uh, recombinant uh, factor 8 and 9 genes. And small studies so far, only 13 here, and, and, and 10 in uh, hemophilia B but every single one of these patients has had a, um, a stable uh, amount of uh, coagulation factor uh, expression from these, uh, from these vectors with no significant toxicity. Um, and, and these phase three trials are enrolling. So I think that in my lifetime, in my professional lifetime, we may very well see a, a cure for hemophilia. And, and uh, I, l- let me just end on the little baby I talked about in, uh, in uh, uh, the beginning. So the little baby was born to a hemophilia carrier mom, and her grandpa is one of our patients, and he um, participated in a nationwide trial where, where uh, hemophilia genotyping was, was done. So every hemophilia patient was offered the opportunity to have, have genotyping, and he participated in that. We learned his mutation, and these are, these are stable through generations, and so we know his mutation, therefore we know what she carries, and she was able to uh, uh, do in vitro fertilization and pre-implantation screening so that she uh, does not have a boy with hemophilia. And, um, you know, we can argue about the ethics of that, but this is a young woman who grew up seeing her father crippled, you know, with with joint bleeds, and and no, so that's a that's an important point. So so some of the mutations. So for example, the. Uh, the the mutation the royal family mutation is a mutation of factor nine that gives us a truncated protein. There are there are mutations, big deletions that result in no no protein. There are some in the milds that just a, a result in kind of a you know a single amino acid substitution. So they re, they're all over the map. So the. the Right. That, yeah, you'd have to, so you'd have to presume that the defective protein isn't, isn't binding, isn't able to bind. So, whatever, whatever extrinsic uh, uh, therapy you're giving, whether it's a, a normal factor or whether it is a bi uh, a specific antibody, yeah, yeah. Okay, thank you.